Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Robert Yeager and the Tao Foundation. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Sujata Shinivasan, filling in for Catherine Shen. Connecticut's emergency shelters served more than 5,000 people last year. That's according to the Connecticut Coalition to End Homelessness. But housing advocates say that the shelter model is a temporary solution from stakeholders. Today, we hear from the person behind Rosette Neighborhood Village on Rosette Street in New Haven. It's in the backyard of what's known as Armistad House. We hear about the Rosette model, how stable transitional housing for unhoused people is leading to better health outcomes. Residents are hoping to live in pallet shelters soon, prefabricated tiny homes set up on site so they can live safely, they say, with privacy, dignity and in better health. Joining us in the studio today are Mark Colville, the housing activist behind Rosette Village, Mark and his wife Luz live at Amistad House. The village is in their backyard. Also in the studio, Suki Godek, an unhoused activist living at Rosette. It's a pleasure to see you both again. Welcome to the show. Thank you. It's great to be here. <laughs> Welcome to the show. Mark, let me start with you. When people walk into Rosette Village in your backyard at Amistad House, what do they see? Well, the first thing they see, hopefully when they walk through the gate, is that we've posted a sign um, over a year ago now. We posted a sign entering the backyard uh, declaring that, that, uh, that the space back there is, is now a human rights zone. And what we mean by that is that, um, is that uh, we have claimed that space as, as a particular spot where the, um, the human right to take refuge on public land when the state does not provide you with adequate housing, that that right will be respected. That that right actually comes from the uh, the UN Universal Declaration on Human Rights. So it's a very authoritative, uh, particularly for the United States. As, you know, uh, we are constitutionally bound to the to the UN Universal Declaration on Human Rights, and so we um, we notice that uh, that this right is not respected on public land in the city of New Haven, and so we decided that uh, that we needed to carve out a space for people who are homeless in order that that right be respected. So when you walk through the gate, you'll see um, a pretty ordered um, uh, conglomeration of, of uh, tents and you know homes that people have set up. We actually, when we, we've welcomed people again since uh, June of uh, 22, we've been welcoming people into the backyard um, in order to try to get, again, this policy change that we need in New Haven. So you have uh, uh, people who have set up homes there and they're living uh, cooperatively and self-governing. Um, and uh, Amistad's role, uh, our house of hospitality, has pledged to give them some basic infrastructure like running water and electricity and such, and the ability to cook and, and store their stuff and clean themselves and do laundry and such. You know. So we've set up an, an environment in which um, we, we want it to be a model of what a, a supported tent city would look like. 
And um, I understand now that your resources are stretched even further. You have more backyard neighbors now. Um, and uh, we met a few of them when I interviewed you under the Elo Grasso Boulevard overpass. And those people were later evicted <coughs> by the city. And some of them now are living at Rosette. How are they doing? Well, um, it was, uh, as you might imagine, I mean, some of the folks living under there, uh, under the bridge over there by the train tracks had been there for as, many, as much as three years. And so their homes were were suddenly violently destroyed, and they were scattered to the neighborhood. Now, um, at Amistad, we've also made a public pledge to the city that every time they scatter people in such a way that we will gather them back together. And so essentially what we did in the backyard, um, you know, I would equate it to setting up a field hospital, you know, <laughs> in the mm -hmm. middle of a battlefield. We simply had to, uh, we went to, to mm -hmm. under the bridge, we invited people, anybody who wanted to take refuge in mm -hmm. our backyard to come on over and we would figure it out. And that's what we went about doing. And uh, Suki was, uh, <laughs> one of the, uh, was one of the main uh, workers in, in trying to help figure that out. So, uh, yeah, that's what we did. And Suki, you yourself were evicted from Tenth City. You told me when I interviewed you for the feature that I was there for. Mm, uh, absolutely. A of, uh, I was also, you know, um, I'm not only an unhoused activist, but we like to, you know, call, uh, call us basically, um, you know, refugees of sorts. And we, we sort of lost, you know, our home and, and everything that, um, you know, we hold dear to us at the Tenth City evictions. And now we've formed this new and I believe a better community, you know, that's much closer um, over at Rosette. And I think that it's going to be absolutely an awesome model. I really hope that a lot of cities, you know, look at this and, and can see, you know, the benefits. Tell me why you and um, others who've been evicted from public spaces chose to come to Rosette instead of moving to a shelter. Well, when you go to a shelter, you're essentially giving up your right to privacy. You're giving up your right to have your loved ones with you. Um, I would be separated from my husband, who is at this point my only prized possession. Um, you know, and and you need everything you can for support, especially through times like that, um, for your mental health and for for other things as well. But um, so that was the big thing for me was I didn't want to be separated. You know, I didn't want to give up all my belongings. I didn't want to give up my right to work past 8 p.m. and be, you know, back, uh, kicked back out in the morning at 5, 6 in the morning. You know, um, there are a lot of factors like that that people take into account, you know, when they're deciding whether to go to a shelter. And, and for us, it just wasn't a reasonable or even logical decision. This is um, much more, you know, real life. And it, and it definitely fits a lot more people's needs, I believe. Tell me how staying um, together as a family is conducive and necessary for your mental health. Talk to me a little bit. Um, share with me a little bit about your story. Oh, absolutely. I mean, everybody needs a support system. You know, we, we all draw on our family in times of need. And um, a lot of us, you know, that have found ourselves in these situations um, due to whatever life choices or paths we chose, um, sometimes don't have those support systems. So, um a community like this really kind of gives you that. It's it's that feeling of, of home and that feeling of community that makes us neighbors, not, um, you know, decriminalizing the homeless. It, it, it makes it more of a human, it really is a human rights concern. It's, it's just your basic right to live somewhere, to be safe, to, you know, just be yourself and not live in fear of, you know, losing everything that's dear to you in a moment's notice. <laughs> Mark, you have rules at Rosette. I understand that residents cannot use substances on site. Uh, yeah, we um, 
we have a few rules, um, very few actually, and um, you know certainly our preference is that is that whatever um, rules or accountability that uh, that needs to be achieved in the backyard that that come from the the people there. You know, essentially we we look at it as a micro neighborhood. You know, and I often remind folks that my neighborhood's in the front. Um, although I do have a stake in the backyard neighborhood. Um, but as far as, yeah, um, we've always had, we've been a house of hospitality at Amistad for 30 years now, uh, since 1994. And um, we've had a basic uh, rule that we don't want, um, we don't want drugs or alcohol on the property. So um, that being said, uh, when, we, uh, when we invite people into the backyard, we're giving them not a tent. We're giving them a piece of land, and that gives you uh, rights and responsibilities. Um, I ask people, um, as a matter of integrity, to respect the rules that we already had in place uh, for the property when we when we first uh, arrived. Um, and with that being said, we are not um, we are not narcotics officers, uh, nor do we wish to invade anybody's privacy. Unless there was, you know, it's an absolute emergency situation, you know. So we're giving people the um, independence to work out their own lives, lives and lifestyles and um, and struggles and such, uh, as anybody, you know, as everybody mm. deserves to do on their own private property. Mm. And you do have a humane take on why unhoused people turn to substances. Well, yeah, I mean, there's a, it, it's. The real one of the myths about homelessness, you know. By the way, uh, given the policy in New Haven uh, with regard to homelessness, namely criminalization, um, it's very. It, in order to hold that policy in place, it becomes, uh, at least from our perspective, it becomes uh, very clear that that there's a necessity there to blame the person for their homelessness, and to not allow um, not allow the uh, systemic realities. Uh, to really come into play, and that therefore we uh, we tend to identify a quote homeless person with uh, drug abuse, which is again a myth. Okay, um, uh, drug abuse is a um, is a, often becomes a response uh, mm. to the reality of the reality of chronic homelessness in terms of uh, people needing to numb mm. themselves to the to the reality in which they're living. Um, and so we don't we don't make moral judgments on such, on that kind of thing. Um, mm -hmm. We like to point to the fact that uh, that we that these people are they are not being recognized as persons again because they do not have mm -hmm. a legally sanctioned place to exist, mm -hmm. um, and that's a serious that has serious implications uh, for mental health as well as physical health among our people. Suki, um, would you be comfortable sharing uh, with us how you lost your home? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, I actually lived on a rather large dairy farm <laughs> with my husband. And um, when COVID hit, we were literally pouring milk down the drain. So um, all 40 employees of this farm lost um, our homes. We lost our vehicles, um, everything. And uh my husband's family, you know, wanted us to move up here to Connecticut to be closer. And um, unfortunately, uh, his father's health decreased, you know, and we've um, sort of made our home here. But, uh, you know, we started here with nothing. And um, we found ourselves at the train station. We didn't have anywhere to go. Um, I had actually had someone at the train station steal my wallet uh, the first two days I was in Connecticut. 
Um, so I couldn't get a job immediately when I got here. And um, it just so happened that I saw someone uh, walking towards the soccer field and they said, hey, there's a tent city back here. You know, there's some people that have tents set up that you can, you know, leave your things and they won't be bothered. And um, so we gave it a try. We, we got a tent and we set it up and um, we ended up being at uh, Tent City for about seven months. And then um, we were evicted in April and then we ended up at Amistad and been there now for about four months. Right. And this is a sort of a self-governing uh, community in a way that I understand that you had to, everyone had to vote in order to make space for uh, those that were most recently evicted? Well, we don't say vote. We say a consensus. We, we reached the consensus. Everybody, you know, um, agrees on everything. And uh, it feel, that way everyone feels that their opinion is valued. It's not, um, you know, they won or us against them or, you know, whatever. We, t- we try to discourage that kind of thinking. So it was, um, you know, a group decision to um, allow these people to come. And most of the time, no one has any objections to different people in those situations. And we really do try to honor that, you know, if you don't have a place, we'll find you one. If, if, if you need help, we'll give it to you, even with the, the people in substance abuse. Um, it's well known throughout the neighborhood that um, if, if you are a user or even selling drugs, that if you need help, these people will help you. Mm. The thing about losing one's home, isn't it, Suki and Mark? A few missed paychecks, a major illness. I spoke to one of your neighbors at Rosette Village, Bliss Sarania. Here's what she told me. I have some really deep trauma in my past, a um, couple different PTSD diagnoses from different time. I was abused really bad as a child, and then what actually led to my homelessness was I was living in Alabama with my partner, Gavin, my soulmate. He was amazing, and one day he just died from an aneurysm, and he was only 25 years old. And losing um, all of his income plus all of his support I couldn't handle it. I couldn't afford my rent. I didn't know what to do. I wasn't in a place to be able to, you know, face it. I also have lupus and fibromyalgia. I don't know. I want to be part of the world. I want to contribute. I want to be like, look at this thing I made. I want to be like, you know, motivated. And But in order to be able to do that, you have to have a foundation under you, you know? And that's part of what Amistad provides is if you're spending all your emotional and mental energy just surviving, there's no energy to better your life, to go to school, to go to work, to whatever. But when you have a home that you know is going to be there for you and a bed that you know you're going to be sleeping in every night, that gives you a lot more ability to go out there and fight the fight and deal with the stress and take on the world, you know? Mark, could you respond to what we just heard from Bliss? Yeah, well, it, it uh, touches my heart to hear uh, to hear that testimony, and um, uh, it also doesn't surprise me because I, you know, I, I would say that when we first um, uh, set up the backyard uh, village, that I had many sleepless nights, um, just uh, looking out my window in the backyard, and and uh, and I'm talking about initially, you know, just um, saying, is this the best we can do? you know, for people and, you know, why aren't these people inside my house, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and there's a reason for that. The, the reason is that uh, when they're inside the house, they're not criminalized, okay? But the spaces, the, the spaces outside is where they are constantly treated like not human beings. Mm-hmm. They're treated like, um, you know, um, uh, statistics or a, a social problem, you know? Um, so anyway, my... Uh, 
my my thinking about it uh, and my feelings about uh, about the backyard uh, quickly evolved as I saw that um, that that as she was saying, you know that um, you know you get two feet on the ground, you know when you have a when you have an actual uh, legally sanctioned mm-hmm. place to be, mm-hmm. and from there you can fight your way both out of poverty and into the life mm-hmm. that you've uh, that you've aspired to, you know. Um, so it's been beautiful to see uh, to see that happen with a lot of people, and I thought Bliss uh, articulates that very well. Yeah, I can definitely relate to that too. That's mm-hmm. a lot. That's how I feel about it as well. Mm-hmm. You know, it's that hope that tomorrow is going to be better because you have this safe place where you can wake up every day and and have the privacy and the dignity that we all need in order to get up and work. And and that has been a huge impact on my mental health and and those of all my neighbors at Rosette and especially bliss, you know, um, said it perfectly. Like that's just, that's the exact foundation Mm -hmm. and support you need from your community in order to have a better, you know, life. Right. And there's the mental health aspect and the the day to day nitty gritty of your physical space. Uh, I, uh, when when I visited Rosette, one thing that struck me was how clean it was. Mm -hmm. And yes, the sense of hope and optimism that you talk about. I mean, it was, it was there when I met uh, the residents, and one of them was Megan Kantorowski, and she used to live under the bridge at Lamberton Street in New Haven, and she told me that her asthma back then was really bad. Let's take a listen. Yeah, there's tons of black mold under there. There's also a lot of um, rats, so we're exposed to the uh, droppings, uh, they get in your food, and I got really sick, actually. I was using my inhaler like six times a day at one point, um, and I use it maybe three times a week. And there were, you know, others that told me that their blood pressure was improving, you know, because people were working out, you know, helping in the community, had a sense of community. Um, but, I mean, to, to someone who's been in the field for years, the health outcomes are a no-brainer. Mm-hmm. But what, is, what would be surprising to someone uh, listening, um, the, the health outcomes that people don't expect that come with, you know, even living within a tent, but in the space where they feel safe and a sense of belonging yeah um <clears throat> you're really getting to the you know maybe the uh, heart of the issue in terms of of these encampments you know that they are communities you know um even when they're not supported um the um well for example the uh you've mentioned that the uh, the encampment that was just bulldozed uh, under the bridge there you know um it really, it really hurts me uh, to have seen the way that went down. You know, um, actually, the the public uh, justification that was given from the mayor's office for bulldozing that encampment was that it was unsafe, relate, uh, relating specifically to the fact that it was near the railroad tracks. Mm-hmm. And but not only that, the justification they used was a person. Okay, his name was Victor Vivar. Mm. He was a friend of ours. He sat at our table at Amistad for mm. at least two decades uh, for meals. You know, um, Victor had been encamped further up the river from from that spot, and one night the police came in and destroyed all of his stuff. Mm. I believe they even took his medications. He had nothing. He was wandering in the middle of the night, mm-hmm. and the only place he knew to go was down uh, to where people were camped down there. Mm-hmm. He wandered down there and apparently was hit by a train. Mm-hmm. Now, in other words, it was the, his death was a direct result of, of an encampment sweep, 
of a police action sweeping an encampment. And that's exactly what they did last week in the name of safety. Um, mm -hmm. This is a tragedy and a scandal that has to stop. Mark, we're going to be talking to the mayor in a bit. But um, tell me about your hopes and aspirations. Mm -hmm. uh, what you have in your backyard is uh, is something of a, of a seed, but you have a bigger dream. Um, tell me about uh, how you envision uh, pallet houses. Uh, in, yeah. uh, by Thanksgiving, I understand. Yes. Um, at the beginning of this year, uh, right around January, um, uh, we started reaching out to folks uh, uh, because people had been uh, had been watching the news, and we had been actually the what we were doing in the backyard was starting to be covered. Stir some feathers. Yeah. So um, people started calling, you know, from particularly from the suburbs. You know, uh, several folks from Guilford and um, East Haddam and such, um, mm -hmm. and they wanted to know what we could do. So we kind of put together a committee that's which is actually called the Rosette uh, Neighborhood Village Collective, and they went about. Um, uh, researching uh, this tiny home uh, reality, which uh, tiny homes is a is a mode of transitional housing that's now uh, taking shape in many cities across the United States, mm. and and these folks uh, decided that that it's time to uh, to do that in New Haven. So we uh, we uh, went about raising money. We uh, mm. we just ordered six uh, tiny homes, mm. um, which are going to be assembled uh, before Thanksgiving and. And we're going to have a bit of a homecoming, um, and uh, you know, it, it, it's hard to uh, to emphasize how much of a game changer that is for people when you can actually walk through a door mm. and lock it behind yeah, you. Definitely, um, yeah, it's a it's a definite game changer from a and from it, a tent, especially you know, for women as well. Yeah. You know, we we get a lot of um, young ladies on the that live on the streets. You know, and they don't have a safe place, even. Um, with us having our community hut where they can come for emergency if anyone ever needs a, a place to rest their head. But but you run into that problem where there's nowhere safe for you to sleep. And if there's nowhere safe for you to sleep, you stay up longer. That makes your your everyday quality of life suffer because you're not thinking clearly and it puts you in a very vulnerable position. So these these homes are really kind of uh, more than just hope. They're they're a model that we really need to embrace, you know as a country and just see how this works because I think it would change lives. We have just a few moments. Um, so uh, tell me, Mark, what is the experience of uh, these pallet homes, these tiny homes in other states? I understand Vermont has them. How, mm -hmm. has, um, you know, how has the city and how have the communities there responded to it? Well, all the reports that I've heard are, are excellent, you know, that it just uh, it improves the quality of life for people. It actually, it, it brings people back into the status of neighbor. And that is uh, particularly, you know, in our, I'm a homeowner in my neighborhood, you mm -hmm. know, by the way. Mm -hmm. And uh, people don't really think about, as a homeowner, the impact of, of sending all these people every day from shelters, let's say. Mm -hmm. Back on the street. Back on the street <laughs> to scatter and disappear. Mm -hmm. They're not recognized as neighbors, even in the poorest neighborhood in New Haven, which is where we live. So it's... Um, yeah, uh, the, this um, the status of personhood, the status of neighbor, is um, is so crucial to uh, both the individual uh, person's development and the and the life of a neighborhood. Absolutely, and homelessness is always a something someone doesn't want to see in their city. They tend to look over that, mm -hmm. you know. <laughs> and how long um, are you willing to let people stay in your backyard? My philosophy is that people should stay. Uh, until they aspire to something better. 
We are hearing from Mark Colville of the Amistad Catholic worker Rosette Village and from Suki Godek, an unhoused activist living at Rosette. Coming up next, we hear from New Haven Mayor Justin Ellicker about the city's efforts to combat the problem of people being unhoused. This is where we live. I'm Sujata Srinivasan in for Catherine Shen. Stay with us. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. Loneliness can be a significant health risk to people of all ages. Dr. Laura Saunders, a psychologist from Hartford HealthCare's Institute of Living, talks about social isolation and why we need to connect in person. Loneliness actually is a pretty significant health risk for people that struggle with social isolation. It affects their blood pressure, it affects their immune system, it affects your willingness to get up and get out and can cause some not just emotional issues, but health problems as well. You're not alone. Dr. Saunders explains how important it is for us to look to others and get out of our comfort zone. I like to talk about social isolation as not just that individual's problem, but it's a community problem or it's a family problem. We need to connect with others. We can take space at times as well, but we need to step out of our comfort zone and do things to connect with other people. It's life-saving. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Sujata Shinivasan filling in for Catherine Shen. The number of people who became unhoused in Connecticut increased by 13% between 2021 and last year. That's according to the organization Advancing Connecticut Together. Joining us now via Zoom to talk about what this looks like in New Haven is Mayor Justin Ellicker. Mayor, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me on. And in the studio with us, Mark Colville of the Amistad Catholic Worker, Rosette Village. Mayor, I'd like to start with you. Mark Colville has a growing backyard community of unhoused people who moved there after they were evicted from Tent City and more recently from under the Elo Grasso Boulevard overpass. And they now live in Rosette Village on Rosette Street in New Haven. Do you see this as a viable solution on private or even public land? Uh, so first of all, I'd, I'd like to start by uh, saying that this is a very challenging issue and there's no easy solutions and cities around the nation are struggling with it. Absolutely. And, and ultimately, the, uh, the way that we address this in the long term is through affordable housing and ensuring that there's more access to affordable housing mm-hmm. and other supports for people that are struggling with homelessness. Mm-hmm. And the city is doing a lot uh, in the meantime to increase the number of emergency beds that exist. I know there's been a lot of interest by uh, Mark and uh, the group of advocates that he's been working with mm-hmm. about a endorsed public site that um, we could have an encampment in the city. Uh, you know, we, we effectively uh, have that now in many ways. Uh, we do not, and I think there's some things that we're 
uh, mischaracterizations that were said earlier on. We do not criminalize people that are homeless. Mm -hmm. And uh, the reality is that the, the people working both for the city uh, that are focused on homelessness from our uh, Department of Community Resilience, mm -hmm. the many nonprofit organizations, Elm City Compass, and our state partners at DEMAS work very, very hard uh, to help the individuals that are most vulnerable in our community. Uh, and, and I think to to, to frame this as uh, the, the city uh, criminalizing people or uh, evicting people with no uh, reason is 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 not fair to the work of uh, the people that are working very, very hard mm. on a issue uh, to help support people. Uh, we're focused on in, in the, the short term increasing the number of beds. And I think one thing that Suki said is very important that the congregate shelter model. Mm. There's uh, some individuals experiencing homelessness that have a pet. Uh, there may be families and we do have some family shelters, but we're trying to expand that. I presented to the Board of Alders and they're reviewing now the acquisition mm. of a hotel on Route 80. Mm -hmm. Uh, that would add 56 uh, hotel rooms that would allow us much more flexibility to support people that are experiencing homelessness. But, you know, the ultimate solution here is, uh, I think, in our view as a city, not to have uh, endorsed encampments, but to focus on expanding options for emergency housing mm -hmm. and expand uh, affordable housing in the city. Mark, briefly, uh, would you like to respond to that? Yeah, um, to say that you're not uh, criminalizing uh, people who are homeless um, flies in the face of reality, particularly the reality of last week where um, there were people that uh, were encamped under that bridge for, uh, for three years. And I don't care where you live. Uh, if you've lived someplace for three years, that's your home. And if you're going to evict somebody from there, you bring them into an apartment. If you, if not, you are criminalizing their lives. Um, also, that uh, that particular encampment, in order to get there, you needed to walk through private property. In other words, there's a neighbor there, a homeowner, who opened their gate for now for several years, welcoming people into that space. Those are our neighbors, and they got scattered into the neighborhood, and we essentially had to set up a field hospital in our backyard to take care of them. That is criminalization. Gentlemen, if I may, so I, both of you are approaching uh, this, this um, heartbreaking and very real problem of uh, people being unhoused uh, in different ways. Um, but getting back to um, what the city has been doing, I understand that New Haven allocates $1.4 million from its general fund, uh, budget fund, to support unhoused people. Um, but not everyone's happy with the sh shelter system. Earlier, I interviewed uh, Rico Jones, <coughs> excuse me, a carpenter living at Rosette Village who's been at shelters and says, never again. You might as well just go to prison. They search you when you come in. They take your stuff from you. They don't allow you to bring in your own food. Their food is substandard or trash. You have to leave at 7.30 every morning without fail. You are kicked out whether it's raining outside or you're sick. They don't care. Mayor Elika, could you respond to what we've just heard here? I mean, um, you know, from Jones's perspective, it doesn't seem like he has an option at a shelter to be able to build a life. 
Sure. So I, th- I think that it is uh, it is true that the shelters are not ideal circumstances, and I, I think we all can agree on that. Um, I, I would say, you know, specific to the encampment that was uh, referenced under the boulevard, uh, there was a months-long effort by outreach workers to help support people to find a landing place. Mm. Uh, everyone was offered a bed who was at the encampment. And uh, I think that we can agree that uh, the congregate shelters are not the ideal model. Mm -hmm. All that being said, we're working very hard to, and I mentioned the hotel, to expand the options for uh, individuals so that the people can have more of a sense of a dignity, people can have more private space, Mm -hmm. Uh, people don't have to leave uh, the Congress shelter mm. at 7 a.m. in the morning. Um, and I think that is the pathway that we're working to activate this hotel, presuming the Board of Alders approves it uh, come winter time, so that we can provide more options for people that are in these uh, difficult circumstances. I would emphasize mm. we do not remove encampments unless we have a public safety concern specific to uh, the Allegrasso and Lamberton uh, overpass encampments. Mm. This was on state land. The state made a decision, uh, which we supported, because people were camping right next to the train tracks. People were walking across the train tracks. It was not a safe environment. But to say that people were suddenly uh, told to leave is just not accurate. We, The city pushed the state for months to make sure that everyone had uh, the support, engagement uh, that individuals needed so that we could uh, work to find a solution. There's not perfect solutions here, but we're working very hard uh, under a difficult circumstance uh, when we're seeing a lot more people around the nation and New Haven experiencing homelessness to help support people. Mm. Talking about what's going on in the nation, what's your take on tiny homes in addition to the um, expansion to the hotel model? Uh, how, how do you think the tiny homes for the unhoused population on public land, perhaps, or private land, could address um, some of uh, these problems? So we're very interested in the concept and are looking into the concept. And I think it's more challenging than one might think. Uh, that being said, we're very interested in the concept. I, I'd emphasize that you know there's a lot of talk about public land, and public land is for all of the public. Mm-hmm. And I think there's a tension here uh, between uh, designating uh, what, what you know we call public land for a small group of people mm. uh, versus for the use of everyone. Uh, that being said, we uh, uh, are looking at different properties around the city that might have the potential for the construction of tiny homes. It's it's more challenging than just putting up you know a shed that one buys at Home Depot uh, or a container home because we have building codes for a reason. Mm. If there is an extreme weather event or uh, the homes need to be winterized, uh, they need to be safe. And the city, if we we were going to support and endorse a site, we need to make sure they're safe. Mm. So there needs to be some sort of foundation. There needs some uh, sort of utility hookup. And so it is more challenging than one might think. All that being said, uh, we're very interested in the concept, and, and we think it's a uh, one of the many things that we need to be doing to provide more options for uh, people that are struggling with housing right now. 
Thanks to New Haven Mayor Justin Ellicke for being on the show today and to Mark Colville of the Amistad Catholic Worker Rosette Village. Coming up, we learn more about what's being done in the emergency room to care for unhoused people. This is where we live. I'm Sujata Shinivasan, filling in for Catherine Shen. is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Sujata Shinivasan, in for Catherine Shen. Studies in France, Canada, and California found that supportive and stable housing led to better access to medical care and to better outcomes. That's according to the Urban Institute. Here with us in the studio, Dr. Caitlin Rice, instructor in emergency medicine at Yale. Dr. Rice, delighted to have you here. Hi, thanks so much for having me. Tell me about your work at the Yale ED Homelessness Task Force. Sure. So uh, I'm by training, I'm an emergency medicine physician, and I work clinically in our uh, emergency department. I also conduct research uh, that examines uh, health outcomes among patients experiencing homelessness and how those health outcomes are reflected or impacted by uh, local housing policies. And then as part of my uh, work, I also am on the board of directors at the Downtown Evening Soup Kitchen. And then you asked about the uh, emergen- Yale Emergency Department Task Force, Homelessness Task Force. Um, that's something I run. It sort of originated out of a research project. It was a um, community-based participatory research project, and we bring together people from uh the patient population, um, patients experiencing homelessness, uh, social workers, nurses, residents, um, and trainees. We also bring together hospital administrators, uh, people from local homelessness service organizations, um, really try anyone who has is a stakeholder in this space. And we try to meet, you know, monthly to quarterly, depending on kind of what the community needs are. And uh, we try to be flexible based on those. You spoke about the impact on you know, health outcomes, mm-hmm. depending on the various uh, housing models uh, in the city and in the state. Could you talk about how the traditional shelter model, you know, in and out in 90 days, the separation of families, strict curfew times is impacting physical and mental health among the unhoused population that you see? Yeah, I mean, I think that it's important to recognize that Homelessness is a traumatizing experience, and a lot of people experiencing homelessness have trauma histories. And the shelter, the traditional shelter model in which you have these communal spaces um, and that lack of privacy uh, is very difficult for people with a history of of trauma. Um, And to have that autonomy and uh, sort of self-agency taken away uh, can exacerbate mental health issues that people may be experiencing, substance use issues that they may have. Um, Those crowded spaces, there are um, incidents of people feel threatened for personal space, not only 
in in that sort of psychological, sort of very real physical space, you know, um, fear of violence, sexual violence, theft. Um, and we know from COVID that those spaces were also conducive to communicable, communicable diseases, right? Mm-hmm. And so in a lot of ways, they are suboptimal. And they're also separating people from their support networks, right? You know, if you have... If you have to separate from your partner, from your pet, from your family, you know, that impairs your ability to uh, access care and manage your medical conditions as well. I mean, there is a lot of uh, misinformation and, and, you know, perhaps what you might call misconceptions about being unhoused, in particular about how someone might become unhoused. As an instructor, what do your conversations with your students look like? about how to work with and how to treat um, unhoused people who come to you as patients? Yeah, so um, most of my instruction is in the clinical setting. So I work with trainees like residents and medical students. Um, I think some of the misconceptions I most commonly see are sort of stereotyping surrounding how you identify homelessness and kind of what you're saying is like what brings homelessness and like what they think they're Mm -hmm. looking for, something very visible to them. Mm -hmm. And when in reality, you know, homelessness can be caused by a variety of factors, you know, economic hardships, loss of employment, medical crises, Mm -hmm. um, family breakdown, and ultimately just the lack of affordable housing. So reminding uh, patients that uh, reminding trainees and, mm-hmm. and, and students that they need to actually ask their patients about their homeless about their risk for homelessness and housing and instability um, and that 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 patients can be families and children and that in fact, a third of pa- patients experiencing homelessness are now uh, over age 50. So we have a mm. big geriatric population of patients experiencing homelessness and to the, kind of be flexible in what they're looking for. That's heartbreaking. How frequently do unhoused people who are treated at the emergency department come back? It, they come back a lot, yes. Um, so frequent visitations. I think that also comes into a misconception, right? So there's, if you're looking at the population sort of of people experiencing homelessness, right? Mm. Um, I would say about you know studies have shown about half of those folks don't mm. use the emergency department. So there is this sort of like bias that people who are experiencing mm-hmm. homelessness are always in the emergency department when mm-hmm. actually like, you know, there's a big segment of people who just avoid institutionalization of any kind, mm-hmm. whether it's shelters or the emergency department. Mm-hmm. And then you have that subset of people who use the emergency department a lot. And it can be up to like three, four, seven times mm-hmm. someone who's housed. And there are a lot of things that contribute to that. And I think, again, with misconceptions mm-hmm. is that they're coming there for shelter, for food. Uh, because of substance use, um, when ac- in actuality, people experiencing homelessness are much more likely to have chronic medical hi- conditions like mm. diabetes, heart disease, lung disease, um, and that's what brings them to the emergency department. Um, and they're more likely to be admitted to the hospital once they're there. And when they are admitted, they're more likely to stay in the hospital for more days than if they were housed um, for the same conditions. So um, it's a very different medical experience for someone who's experiencing homelessness. Tell me a little bit about medication-assisted therapy. Is it working for this demographic in our cities? I mean... I'm always an advocate of medication for opioid use disorder, um, and I do think it does work. I think um, that the evidence has shown that housing instability is a barrier, um, and having experiencing homelessness and experiencing unsheltered homelessness makes it hard to engage 
with medication-assisted therapy. I, um, you know, a recent study came out that uh, sort of modeled what are the impacts of encampment uh, displacement mm. on uh, opioid-related outcomes, and and it predi- it projected you know increased overdose mortality and a decrease in medical uh, therapies for opioid use disorder. And um, it's a particularly vulnerable time. I mean, this is a vulnerable demographic, but particularly even more at risk um, following what is referred to as these encampment sweeps. Uh, So when encampments are cleared out, uh, describe what happens. And uh, do you, uh, at the time, you know, see more adverse health outcomes? And how is your department addressing this? Yeah, you definitely see more adverse health outcomes. Um, I mean, I think it's... I want to be fair in acknowledging that there is um, there are risks to health and safety to unsheltered homelessness, um, mm. whether you're in an encampment or mm. or, or otherwise. That those do exist. Mm. Um, and, but as we heard today, there are also a lot of really important benefits to encampments as a form of unsheltered ha- homelessness. Um, and so, what happens when you break up that encampment? Um, is that you are disrupting that sense of community and support. Mm. Um, The displacement and loss of personal belongings can exacerbate mental health challenges, including depression, anxiety, and trauma. Um, And it exposes people to additional health health risks and that they can lose access to, like, on-site medical services if Mm. they've been there, Mm. harm reduction supplies that might have been there. Mm. Um, A lot of uh, outreach workers will know to... Show the, show up there for mm. their clients, and so you may disrupt that relationship to outreach workers. Um, people lose their medications, mm. their documents, their phones. So their mm. ability to um, maintain their uh, health um, becomes a problem. Yes, and uh, you might be familiar with the recent JAMA study. I think it came out in April uh, in the, um, the Journal of the American Medical Association. Uh, that found encampment sweeps correlated with higher mortality rates mm-hmm. and higher rates of hospitalization um, in the demographic um, that had substance use disorder. Yes, yes. There was um, increased in uh, overdose mortality as well as even aside from mortality, uh, that also showed that um, substance use-related infections such as um, endocarditis or abscesses uh, were projected to increase, and that it also showed a a decrease in engagement with uh, medication-assisted opioid use disorder. So it just just spirals. It's a cascading effect. Now, in addition to uh, medical treatment, uh, what does your hospital ED um, offer in terms of socioeconomic support to uh, unhoused patients? Yeah, so our emergency department, we are staffed 24-7 with social work. Um, we also have uh, care coordinators that can help us with sort of placement in sort of rehab um, and respite placement uh, for people who aren't aren't going to be able to manage their medical condition at home, but maybe don't require hospitalization. Um, we also have uh, Project Assert with um, folks who help people connect to substance use resources mm. um, within the community and uh, are, are very well versed in what's available for people experiencing um, homelessness. As a doctor, what is the single most important thing you've learned from treating unhoused people? Oh. <laughs> um, I think that it has 
humbled me in in what I can uh, what I can fix and can't that um, I can prescribe all the antibiotics I may want, but mm-hmm. if I I can't prescribe someone housing, I can't prescribe someone access to mm-hmm. consistent sanitation, mm-hmm. you know, and that uh, those are. It, it really shows me where my limits are, but also then tells me, like, where I need to apply my voice and, and be, you know, a member of my community. I'm not just a doctor at the day of that problem. Thank you, Caitlin. A pleasure to talk to you um, today, instructor in emergency medicine at Yale. I'm Sujata Shinivasan. Today's show is produced by Tess Terrible. Our technical producer is Kat Pastor. Thanks for listening. Have a lovely day and be well.